It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ Bernstein is a proven dynamic trial lawyer. She's been named to Georgia's super lawyer list since 2008 and also Georgia Trent Magazine Legal Elite and received national and state awards for her client advocacy and commitment to justice. Now, here's your host, BJ Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with BJ. Today's guest I've known for a while, and she is someone who is truly committed to justice, and that's justice for people who are often forgotten. You know, we all say in the criminal justice system that we want people rehabilitated. We want them to go back into the world and earn a living and pay taxes and be part of the community, and yet we don't provide them the guidance, the service, the help to actually get there. And Cynthia Roseberry is our guest. She's going to talk about that in her entire career from the time she started the Federal Defender's Office to her most current projects that we're going to be talking about. I think you'll understand why she's an important guest in trying to figure out what is going to help the mass incarceration that we've had and how people can go back to life and be U.S. citizens that we're proud of. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you, BJ. It's great to be here. So you started your days as a federal defender, and a federal defender is a public defender, but in the federal system. That's right. And tell us a little bit about how the federal criminal justice system differs from a state system. Sure. So a federal defender would represent indigent uh, folks charged with a federal offense in any one of the more than 90 federal districts across the nation. It's a little bit better funded than the traditional state federal defender system. Uh, But the cases are made differently. They're generally investigated by the FBI or the DEA ahead of time. And then so you get more serious cases and you get cases that I would say are more solidly grounded in an investigation. Um, And, you know, we represent people from all walks of life in that system who can't afford a lawyer to help them defend against the United States government. Those types of cases, do they, they're both violent and nonviolent, all types of white collar crimes, and yet they still may end up needing a federal defender, correct? Absolutely, because we, you know, for example, in a fraud case where someone may have been a millionaire, if the federal government seizes their assets uh, prior to uh, the indictment or after the indictment, they have no funds to hire a lawyer. Uh, But it could also include, you know, the 17-year-old kid who was caught selling marijuana or possessing marijuana for the third time. That could also be a federal case. You went on, though, to not that that was not great enough (laughs) than what you did, but you actually took on something that made national headlines and changed lives for so many people and that you were the executive director of the Clemency Project in which President Obama made it a priority before he left office to actually review convictions of federal offenders to determine whether they should receive clemency. The best work I've ever had. It was such an honor to serve in that way. You know, sentencing in the federal system is subject to mandatory minimums, and there's a grid that's used. So often the judge doesn't have the discretion to sentence someone 
the way he or she feels a person should be sentenced. And so what we had were people who ended up with life sentences even for relatively minor drug offenses, subject to discretionary charging authority of the prosecutors. And I had the opportunity to go into the administration, work with the administration to submit petitions for clemency for the folks who were sentenced under federal law. So with clemency, what's the difference between clemency and the word that we hear a lot, parole, and what kind of rights do you get back? Give us a little more idea of if someone's granted clemency, which is a huge, huge hurdle. Sure. So clemency is really the shortening of a sentence. It really encompasses two kinds of relief. One is a pardon. And it's, as you might think, it's a forgiveness, a total forgiveness of that sin. But the clemency with which I worked was the reduction of a sentence. Often it meant that folks would walk out relatively soon, sometimes not, but it was a reduction. The administration looked at it as a correction of sentences that were draconian in nature, just far too long for folks. And then, of course, parole is what you serve after you get out. In the federal system, there is no parole, but there's uh, post-release supervision, which is just like parole. So you have an officer who monitors your progress as you re-enter society. With the project, what kind of factors were taken into consideration to grant somebody clemency? Sure. So they had to be serving a federal sentence. They had to have served at least 10 years of that sentence. The sentence had to be the kind of sentence, because of the change in law, would be a lower sentence today. They had to be nonviolent folks, folks convicted of nonviolent crimes, and their history, both inside the prison and prior to going to prison, had to be nonviolent. The offenses, was it correct that a lot of them were the drug offenses where the penalty was just far larger than they would have gotten in any other circumstances except for this kind of... It's a grid. I mean, it literally, if anybody looks at it, if any of our listeners goes and pulls out the federal guidelines, it in some ways seems really bizarre that there's this just grid and you two points meet. How long have you been there? What kind of offense? Then you add numbers and subtract numbers to see what your final number is. And then that's the range that a judge could give you. That's right. I've often said if we just use that system without anybody with a heart sitting on the bench, you know, all we'd need is a computer to plug in the figures and bring them out. Right. And that's really what we were looking at with our federal sentencing system. So because there have been changes in the law in the last 10 years and most recently over the last few years, you could have two persons sitting in a cell charged with the same crime, with significantly similar criminal histories, one could be serving life in prison, the other could be serving 36 months. And so this project corrected that inequity in the system. So about how many people benefited from this project? Well, um, let me tell you how many applicants we got to let you know how desperate people were. This was a glimmer of hope. We received more than 36,000 applications for clemency. Now, of course, that included people who were only given a year in prison. Some people from state prison even applied, and they didn't qualify because they weren't convicted of a federal crime. Ultimately, President Obama gave clemency to a little bit over 1,700. So that lets you know how difficult it was to meet the criteria. Almost 900 of those folks were serving a life sentence. And in the federal system, a life sentence is, in fact, a life sentence. So some people say, oh, that number's small. But when I tell you that I've talked with mothers 
and daughters and family members. So when we got people out, we reconnected families. So it wasn't just the person who walked out of the prison. It was the loved ones who had been waiting on that person for a long time who were, in essence, given clemency, too. It's interesting you talk about the personal component. And if I may, you had a TED Talk in January of 2017 that I've had an opportunity to listen to, and I encourage listeners to listen to it as well, where you talked about your own personal life with your father. How has your relationship with your father and his alcoholism, was that part of why you were passionate about this project? Oh, absolutely. And about uh, criminal defense in general. Uh, what my father's alcoholism taught me, you know, he was an alcoholic, but he wasn't just that. This was a man who spoke German and liked the opera and studied biology. So he was more than just the label alcoholic. He was more than that one failure, if you will, that he had. And I think that's true of all people. We are so much more than the drug offense that we had or whatever the mistake is, the sin uh, it is that uh, we have against us. And in our criminal justice system, we take that one sin and we say, this person is disposable. We slap a label on them and that label remains with them forever. So in my TEDx talk, it was inside a prison in Pennsylvania. And what I was trying to do was to relate The subject matter was the children of incarcerated parents because they're innocent people locked away from their parents. And so I drew the analogy between my being locked away from my father by virtue of his alcoholism and their being locked away from their parents by virtue of that conviction. So as part of the clemency project, for instance, if someone, when you're investigating their background, did you really look into get that personal about their family, who their parents were. absolutely. So we had more than 4,000 lawyers retrained uh, to do this work to represent them in petitions. And some some of them were tax lawyers that never touched a criminal matter. Uh, And so not only did we have to train them to be proficient in the law and the procedure, but we had to teach them how to have a live client and to get to the heart of the matter of the client. You know, the fact that someone grew up in an impoverished community, didn't have access to their parents or good education for that matter, because those are drivers of mass incarceration we know in our system, to teach them to touch the lives of the people, to get to know the family members who are waiting. I'll tell you a funny story. I had a mother of one person who ultimately was released, and I met him, uh, who would call me and pray with me once a month. She said, may I do that? And she didn't just pray for her son. She prayed for everyone we were trying to help, and she prayed for me. President Obama gave him clemency, and I met him, and he said, I want to thank you for praying with my mother, right? Not thank you for helping me get clemency, but thank you for praying with my mother. And it just shows you how this incarceration, this machine that we have, affects real people, real families, and real lives. We've got to do better. So the federal system, I mean, part of, because I came out of the state system originally as a prosecutor and then became a defense attorney and eventually did some federal cases myself. You saw the light. I've seen a lot, um, and I'm grateful for having all those experiences. But I I think it 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 was it's very um, ominous the federal system, you know, just like the federal government is for anybody, you know, in terms of the power of the the government. 
but how technical and how driven by numbers it is versus individuals. And, you know, when I go to a state court, I mean, granted, mandatory minimums have come in and with a certain offense, you get X amount of years. But there seems to be a little bit more leeway at times to really argue what's appropriate for the individual. Do you have any ideas with your work with the Clemency Project beyond clemency of ways or reforms that need to be made to take the individual into account more, particularly in the federal system? Sure. So one of the things that I think is a huge power in the federal system is the discretionary power of the prosecutor. I mentioned earlier that we might have had a kid in a federal case who was caught with a little bit of marijuana, right? So under federal law, on your third such offense, if each of those are felonies, then the prosecutor has the discretion to file a notice that can double your sentence and increase your sentence up to life. And that power is greater than the power of the judge to deviate from a sentence. And so when I was working in clemency, I ran across many judges who wanted to say something on behalf of people they'd sentenced. They wanted to say, if I had more discretionary power, I would have given a lower sentence originally. But the prosecutor, not only the way they charged the crime, but because of this notice that they can give to double or even quadruple the sentence up to life, the judge didn't have the discretion to reduce the sentence. And that sounds counterintuitive, right? Right, because you would think it's the state would be that, you know, it would be the reverse. But. Right. So, and, and when you have a system among prosecutors, and we have a lot of great prosecutors, right? I, I knew you as a prosecutor, and you were a fair and just prosecutor. But I paid her. <laughs> but I have a few people who say I was one of the most unreasonable of that unreasonable bunch. I will confess it depends what the case was. Right, and um, where you are in your career, too, right? Because the younger you are, the less life experience you have, and the more dogged you are about what your boss is telling you. And the more interested, perhaps, you are in climbing the ladder. Mm. And sadly... In our systems, prosecutors are rewarded for the convictions. Now, BJ, you and I know that all lawyers swear an oath uh, to do justice, right, to do the right thing. And prosecutors have that special oath that they swear not to win a case, but to do justice. Uh, and, and that is a special responsibility that I think gets lost sometimes. Uh, I'm not trying to to say that all prosecutors are bad because they're not. No, there's some excellent ones. But the system itself creates an environment where getting a conviction is very important. And you've seen that in the news recently with there are some prosecutors, for example, in the state system who don't want DNA tested. And why would you not want to find out if a person who's convicted of a crime is actually the person who did it? Because if you find out that they aren't, that means you also know that the person who did it is still out there. But, you know, all of us can get jaded inside that huge system. So that discretion of the prosecutor, I think, needs a check on it, like all of our legal systems, like all of our governmental systems. So one idea is giving a judge a little bit more discretion. And then, again, we're back to one other part, though, that comes from the legislative function, which are these mandatory minimums. That's right. Where there's no – someone's done something wrong, but – being pre-decided without knowing the facts or the circumstances based on 
a certain situation that, I mean, the clearest is drugs. You know, you possess X amount of drugs, then that's trafficking in drugs. And I remember as a criminal defense lawyer, you know, people come in saying, well, you know, it was only an eight ball or whatever the measurement they had. It's not like they had a warehouse from the cartel and were filling up their car and headed up north, you know, with that many drugs. And yet it was a trafficking case that had a very high amount of time. That's um, right. That a young person in particular, because, you know, you think about young people, they're in the moment. That's right. You know, that 18 to, and I'm going to move it up. I mean, we always say 18 to 22. And if you, anybody listening and all my young listeners don't take this the wrong way, but, you know, even before you're 30, there are just so many things and decisions you make not based on the full picture. That's right. You know, um, you were talking about these young folks not being the cartel. And so in thinking about ways to reform our system, ironically, someone who is a big cartel person has the ability to get a lower sentence than that kid, right? Because in our federal system, a prosecutor can reward someone who gives them information about a case. So the person who's well-connected and high up in the cartel could turn other folks in, everybody on the ladder beneath him or her, and get a reduced sentence, whereas that kid at the bottom who was just working as a cog in that whole cartel uh, would not be able to buy a reduced sentence by giving information. So I'd flip that on its head. And that's dealing, again, back to that grid system where there are points. You get added points for certain behavior because you did something at the wrong place or wrong time that the law says, and then you get a reduction in points. And then when the grid matches, there's a little range for the judge to decide. And that's where you are. You know, my Twitter handle is justice is love. Because if we introduce love in our justice system, then I think we could correct a lot of this, right? If we didn't just have numbers that we could plug into a grid and calculate, you know, how long someone should go to prison. If we had some love in it so that a judge could say, well, I know that uh, you did have this marijuana, but I know that this older person in the community, right, encouraged you to have that marijuana, or that you're bipolar, undiagnosed, and you were self-medicating with that marijuana. We've we've had a psychiatrist on the show, and we were talking about self-medication and how a lot of people don't get the mental help they need. And it's not enough to, whether in the state or federal system, to be recognized as a defense. And yet it is a factor. And so you have people going to prison who really just needs help. That's right. The the, the populations are, you know, young folk, people with mental health issues, and then women uh, traditionally enter the system because there's a relationship with someone uh, there's a young woman, Kimba Smith, who wrote a great book about being a first-time offender and getting life in prison. She was given clemency before President Obama. I think uh, President Clinton gave her clemency. But she talked, She was in college, and she talks about getting involved with a young man who uh, ultimately she took the fall for because of his involvement with drugs, and he got a lesser sentence than her. Our um, women population is growing. The prisons haven't been traditionally built for them because there were fewer women in prison, and you might have seen lately some of the legislation that's been uh, presented to make sure that women are treated with dignity in prison because of the special physiological needs, right, we have in prison and the vulnerability that they have to uh, being harmed when they're in prison. Any tea leaves on 
We've had a shift in administration since you were there, <laughs> and you're not with the Clemency Project anymore. We're, we're doing something exciting we're about to talk about. But any tea leaves on where we are and what potentially this administration would do to either continue having an evaluation of who should really be in prison and making more significant reform? Yeah, if I had to read the tea leaves, I'd say we, we've shifted from there was a good deal of momentum around getting rid of those mandatory minimums that you talked about and relying less on a grid and really looking at the individual when we uh, not only uh, sentence them, but you know when they're charged first coming into the system. There's been a shift away from that, it seems, and the shift is toward those who are going to reenter those who are about to come out of prison. It seems to me that this current administration is looking more closely at the rehabilitative aspect of those who are already in prison because we don't keep everybody in prison forever, right? And folks have to return home. And so the shift is away from the front end and perhaps into the system itself. And I have a lot of things to say about that because our prison systems should be more transparent, frankly. Transparent in what way? Well, we don't know what goes on inside a prison. Do you know? I I don't spend the night. I just go visit. I talk to my client, Leaf. Although we had a great episode called 10 Years in Prison where a young man started to share some things. And and that was just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. We, We don't know. And we're paying for it. Taxpayers are. We should know how... Folks who are in prison are treated. And by that, I don't just mean those who are in prison because of their crime. We should know how the folks who are in corrections are treated in prison. Because if it's dangerous in prison for someone who's incarcerated for a crime, it's also dangerous for the people who are professionals in correction. And we should want to make that environment good for everyone, right? We should want to make it an environment where... Folks who are coming out are prepared to come out, and folks who folks who are working there are safe. But we don't know what goes on inside our prisons. We just don't. We hear stories. There are movies, and and you know, folks like you are able to get the occasional person to talk about it. Many people are traumatized by it. You know, my lay opinion. Um, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I've seen people who are traumatized by prison. I've spoken with them on the phone, and they're reluctant to talk about it. You know, going back a little bit to clemency, one of the criterion was that folks had to have served at least 10 years in prison. And if you think about that, uh, at the time when the folks who were first coming out were coming out, when they would have gone in at least 10 years earlier, the iPhone was just being invented. It's exactly what the young man who came in and on that other episode, because the Internet was not there. And I likened it to taking an alien and planting that alien on an entirely different planet. One woman said she didn't know how to wash her hands because when she went in prison, faucets were not automatic. And she said she felt the humiliation in a public restroom of not knowing how to wash her hands. One man told me he thought he'd lost his mind when he heard someone say, I'm going to call you on my BlackBerry. He couldn't fathom how a person would use a piece of fruit to communicate with him, right? Right. So we've got to, while they're in prison, you know, know what's happening. But they have to be prepared to come out. I I toured a prison within the last three years and saw a selectric typewriter. Now, many many of your listeners (laughs) might not know what that is. (laughs) But that's a precursor to the laptop, right? There you go. (laughs) And the desktop. And and you're going in that direction, and that's that's. The other part of what's happening now that's exciting is that 
You are now going to be with the Mark and Shelley Wilson Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wilberforce University yes. in Ohio. And it's really interesting and exciting because you're going to do, you just said you wanted to go into this area of how do you make reentry into the world workable and viable so that people can really become citizens and mothers and fathers and grandparents and all the things we want, pay taxes. Yes. Um, so tell us what you're going to be doing in Ohio and maybe a little bit about Wilberforce University wanting to take the lead on this. Sure. So I'm happy to talk about Wilberforce University because I'm a graduate. It's our nation's first historically black university founded in 1856. Uh, it's the first private HBCU, historically black university. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois taught at Wilberforce University. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965 did the commencement address, and the King Center there is named for him. Wilberforce sits on the Underground Railroad and in um, a historic area just outside of Dayton in Ohio. So I'm delighted to go back there to our first HBCU to help what will likely be mostly men and women of color, because that's who's incarcerated in our criminal justice system, re-enter through this Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Our chair, Mark Wilson, and his wife, uh, Shelley, created this center so that we could teach folks how to be entrepreneurs. And that's important because... You know, many folks in prison, if they have the opportunity to get a trade, when they come out, they can't join the union of the trade or can't get gainfully employed. You know, they have to check often on an employment application that they've been convicted of a felony. And generally, those applications go into the trash. So what we intend to do at the center, frankly, the broad goal is to change the economic condition of our people. The more specific goal is to train folks who are going to re-enter to start their own businesses. Maybe they've received uh, an education or trade while they were in prison. Or Maybe, before they or may before. Have came, before they came to the table, but you're so thrown off by all the things that happens. I'm assuming perhaps money is going to be provided to help those who have an entrepreneurial bent to go ahead and invest in a small business. Absolutely. What we'll do is teach them how to start and run a small business. We'll teach them how to get money for their business through venture capitalists or through the traditional avenues of getting money. And we'll also teach them how to give back, right? We want them to understand how policy works in our system, and we want them to understand how they can reach back and help someone else who's coming through the system. It also teaches our traditional students how to welcome people back into the community. So the folks in this program, will they be getting a degree like the other students at Wilberforce, or are they just participating in the program, or is both avenues available? Both are available. A certificate program is available for those who want to you know, get a more brief introduction to entrepreneurship, but they're also able to get a four-year degree. We'll physically go into the prison and teach them around entrepreneurship. So this is happening while they're incarcerated, not just upon release it's while they're incarcerated, preparing them for their release. So what facilities are going to be encompassed as part of this program? Well, we're in Ohio, so we've begun discussions with the Department of Corrections in Ohio. My hope is to uh, have it travel into the federal prisons and across the country. But we're starting right there in proximity to where the school is in Ohio. And to start, how many folks are you going to try to get enrolled and 
and get started. We think starting small with uh, the average class size of about 20 or 25 is probably best. It depends on their classification in the correction system. You know, the warden there has to allow them to interact with us as they're ready to come out. It'll depend on who is next in line to come out and how far from coming out they are. So the folks who are closer to coming out might opt for the a certificate, and those who have a little bit longer time in might opt for the four-year degree. What's interesting about this is the consistency you're providing, because I know when I talk to my clients or, or you hear people going to the prisons, maybe one or two people go give a talk. I had a former client who recently went and gave a talk um, at a facility he was incarcerated with, and he felt really good about it, and they wanted him to come back, and that's inspiring. And obviously, the faith-based Groups go in and work with prisoners, and that's very important. There are groups around the country that have tried to implement meditation in prisons to help prisoners. Yoga. Um, But this is the strongest I've heard of really get in there and consistently work towards getting the skills to help correct the issues from before and really jump back into the mainstream. That's right. We also have a school of social work, a master's program at Wilberforce, and my hope is to get those social work students also involved. I've heard from a number of people who've come out that they need a little bit more mental health care as well as they're reentering. So I hope to connect that component too. But one of the most exciting things to me about it is if we train these entrepreneurs and they open businesses, then for those who opt not to go through that program, they'll also create a space to hire people as they come out of prison. And you can change a generation that way, right? You can change communities that way. You can change our nation that way. And frankly, you can change the world because justice really would be love in that instance. We'd be bringing people home into spaces where they're comfortable and with an expectation of something more from themselves and allowing them to help others, allowing them to be of service, which in many instances they want. Well, what I love is that uh, your enthusiasm, and we've known each other for a long time, and what people don't know about you is she's very good at improv. We did an improv (laughs) show together, um, improv comedy, so she can stand on her feet and um, be a lot funnier than I was, but we had a great time doing it, and, and that same, just whatever it is that's in front of you, you just jump in and tackle it, and As everyone knows from this podcast, with every episode, we are enjoying a cup of tea. And I know, I always say I pick the right tea, and I think I do for my guests, because this one on the box is called Vision Tea. It's um, a citrusy lemon verbena with a ginger kick with a, all right, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, guaisa hums base. But the idea for Cynthia Roseberry, (laughs) vision, vision to see this, that With each job you've had in your career, and I think this is instructive to all of us in our lives with what we're doing, you know, you start off as a young lawyer, you become a public federal defender, you move on to the clemency project, and you take each of those experiences, you add on to it and say, I've got a vision that it can still be better. And you wrap it all up in love, and you know, (laughs) you know how I love that. Um, Well, I get far more than I get 
and it's an honor to serve. And, you know, BJ, you've always been one of my sheroes, the way you've aye, been aye, aye, such aye. an advocate uh, for those who, for people of color, for poor people, uh, for the folks our society would throw away. So it takes one to know one. Y'all, she really <laughs> is this nice. But let me tell you, in the courtroom or when she needs to <laughs> dig down and go deep and, and her intellect and her ability to analyze, very few can can rival it. So thank you for sharing all this with us. And I want to come back. Let's see in a year Absolutely. how the program's doing. And then hopefully I'm going to be able to talk to some of these people who are benefiting from it and share with our listeners. So thanks for joining me thanks on Law Talk. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.